I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. Don't miss Cold's new Season 3, where I look into the unsolved disappearance of Cherie Warren, a woman last seen leaving her job at a Salt Lake City office in 1985. Police cast suspicion on Cherie's estranged husband and boyfriend, but never made any arrests or recovered Cherie's remains. Find Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie, anywhere you get your podcasts. A Gentle Thief, written and performed by Amanda Dixon. Episode 20. In Episode 19, it is New Year's Eve and moving into New Year's Day, and we see Maddie feeling strong at first until she has a conversation with her mother that leaves her in tears. And then Junior, her neighbor, the man she's renting a house to, his mother calls, and we learn that he's gotten back together with Beth, and that leaves his mother disappointed. We also see that Robert Abel on New Year's Eve begins to write the novel he always wanted to write. And Consulier goes to Las Vegas and spends the night with a woman he doesn't know and feels sick. And now, episode 20 of A Gentle Thief. Sophie felt oddly at home on the campus of SUU. She wished she were there for another purpose, that she had more time. She wanted to lounge on the grass between classroom buildings like the students she had observed earlier in the day. It was a warm day, but there was a breeze and many large trees to find shade under. There were workers preparing a large white tent on the lawn south of the Adams Theater. Sophie imagined there was some sort of special party planned, perhaps an alumni or fundraising event. Young men dressed as waiters were carrying in crates of glasses. Just then she thought about the Shakespearean festival. Of course, that's what this all was. It was summer. The festival was going on now. That's why she had noticed a makeshift stage outside the theater and people carrying costumes across campus. Sophie wanted to stay, see if she could buy a ticket for that night's play, whatever it was. If she had come all this way, it wouldn't hurt to stay for the show, would it? Who knows? Maybe she would learn something. The festival had been a love of Madeline Johnson's and of her ex-husband's. Going would be research. Sophie had learned an hour ago that Robert Abel was still alive, but no longer a professor at Southern Utah University. The young girl behind the desk in the English department had never heard of him, but she asked the older woman in the office just behind reception if she knew the name. Robert Abel. The woman with thick gray hair repeated as she took off her glasses and stood up to come toward the front desk. She said his name with relish, obviously remembering him fondly. I haven't heard that name in a while. Clarissa Walker, Associate Dean. The woman held out her hand to Sophie. Sophie Brownlee, she said as they shook hands. I'm so sorry to bother you. I'm just wondering if Robert Abel is still a professor here. Not for ten years. Can I help you? Oh, I'm sorry, Sophie said as she reached in the briefcase hanging from her shoulder for a card. I know this is a little out of the blue, but I'm investigating the death of his ex-wife. Which one? 
the woman asked, genuinely wanting to know. Madeline Johnson. The woman stood still, her eyes softened. Maddie was a sweet girl, lost, of course, but sweet. Why do you say that? Sophie asked. What, the lost part or the sweet part? Both, Sophie answered. Maddie was a student here shortly after I started teaching in the early 80s. She was so eager, sweet, swept our Robert right off his feet. Yeah, that's what I gather. What are you investigating? I thought they ruled her death a suicide way back when. The woman looked at Sophie with confusion. They did. It's just, well, Madeline's father never accepted that decision. He's hired me to convince the state medical examiner that it was a homicide and to try to have the case reopened. Oh, my. Clarissa Walker covered her mouth. Well, that would open up one big can of worms, wouldn't it? I imagine so. Well, Robert doesn't teach here anymore. After his first book hit the bestseller list, he got offers from all over the country. I think he's in San Francisco now, writing, of course, and teaching at Berkeley. I can get you a number if you like. Thank you, Sophie said, just a little dejected. She had hoped she would be able to meet Robert Abel in person and talk with him. You know who you ought to talk to? Clarissa said, tapping her glasses on her chin. Seeing as you're here, is my neighbor. Sophie tilted her head with interest. Mina Theron is my neighbor. She used to be a, a counselor. She knew young Maddie, even had her as a client, I think. Although I'm not sure how much she can talk about that, she added conspiratorially. I would love to talk to her if you think she wouldn't mind. Not at all. She's probably just puttering around her garden today. Here's the number. Clarissa handed Sophie a post-it note with Mina Theron's phone number and address on it and Robert Abel's phone number. Oh, thank you, Miss Walker. You've been so helpful. Not at all. We all felt so bad about Maddie. The young receptionist who had been left out of the conversation until now finally asked, What happened to her? She shot herself, Clarissa Walker said, still seeming to struggle with the truth of it. Mina Theron had answered the phone on the eighth ring and agreed to let Sophie come by her house. When Sophie arrived ten minutes later with two sweating-to-go cups of root beer, what Dr. Theron had suggested when Sophie offered to bring refreshment, the former counselor was standing out front with gardening gloves on. Sophie walked up the winding sidewalk and offered her a soda. Oh, thank you, Mina Theron said. What a treat. She took off her gloves and took a long drink of the cold, sweet stuff. There is just nothing better. Thank you so much for seeing me, Dr. Theron, Sophie offered, shielding her eyes from the sun. It's Mina, and you're welcome. Let's go inside. They stepped into the front room of a very small but airy house. The light in the house was wonderful and filled with a sweet scent like lilies. Sophie didn't see any cut flowers in the house, so she thought the scent must be coming in from outside. So, you want to talk about Maddie Johnson? Dr. Theron asked as she sat down on the old couch in the front room. Yes, 
I don't know what you can share with me, but I'd appreciate any light you could shed. Did her parents hire you? Yes, her father. He's convinced Maddie didn't kill herself, Mina interrupted. Yes, I know. He's been trying to get the case reopened for years. He pushed for more investigation 20 years ago when this all happened, but the police believed the medical examiner. Did you? Sophie asked, unsure of what Mina's opinion on that point would matter. I'm not sure. I wasn't sure at the time, either. Maddie was certainly a troubled girl, but also full of life and vigor. Although, and you probably know this, people commit suicide for as many different reasons as there are people, and they do it in any number of different emotional states as well. Often they're in a lighter, more content state immediately prior. Had she been lighter and more content? Sophie interrupted. No, I wouldn't say that. She was struggling with her divorce, as I recall, and, well, she came to see me with her boyfriend. Consulier? Yes, he made the appointment. In fact, the only reason I can tell you about this is because he's specifically given me permission to talk about it. He wrote an expose on his relationship with Maddie 15 years ago for the local paper. Not that anybody much cared by then, but... He seemed to think it was fascinating. He even quoted me in the article. Mina laughed to herself. That may have been the last time I've talked about this, come to think of it. Sophie pulled out her notebook and asked if Mina minded if she take notes. Not at all, but I'm not sure how much I can help you. I've already told all of this to the police and to the young man who came to talk to me ten years ago. Who was that? Sophie asked, scribbling. A private investigator the family hired. He was interviewing all of us, anybody who knew Maddie. I told him all of this ten years ago. If you have the time, would you mind telling me again? I wonder if the investigator's own judgments might have clouded his report at all. That can happen, sure. Mina nodded her head slightly in agreement. Well, let's see. As I remember it, Con called me to set up an appointment for him and his girlfriend. That's how he identified her. And they came the next day. It was just around the holidays, a, a few days before Christmas, I think. I'm not sure if I still have those old appointment books and notes around here somewhere, but I may. It's been a number of years since I've seen patients, Mina explained. Of course, I don't want to impose on you any more than I already have. It's all right. Let's see what I can remember, and we'll go from there. I recall they started off seeming like the average couple, you know, having issues in their relationship, control, insecurity, jealousy, very common issues. Until the dreams. The dreams? Sophie asked. The divine marriage dreams. Khan was dreaming about a, a wedding between him and Maddie that took place at their deaths, their metaphoric deaths. They were both dressed in white, covered in blood, but he sensed they were on the cusp of something, on the verge of a transformation of some kind. He didn't understand the nature of the dream, but he sensed its power. What did it mean? Sophie asked, trying to understand. I'm not entirely sure, although the imagery of marriage coupled with death often symbolizes the transformation of the spirit. 
it is as if the soul is finally embracing its true nature, its divine self. This is the marriage, not of one to another, but of one to self. So the fact that Khan was the dreamer says the dream was really about him, not so much about him and Maddie. Do you follow? It was about his having a spiritual enlightenment of some kind? Perhaps. But in Khan's case, I'm reluctant to call it that. Nina paused. As I've thought back on it, I interpret it this way now. And let me say, by way of caveat, that dreams can only truly be interpreted by the dreamer. But my take on it now is that Maddie represented a divine opportunity for him, a chance for him to find true love. And by that, I don't mean her. I mean his own higher self, the true love of his higher self. Maddie brought or could have brought that out in him. Sophie didn't jump in with a question. She just let Mina think for a moment. Then Mina continued. Who knows what would have happened if she had lived, but the thing Khan talks about the most, or did, is not the divine marriage dream. It's the double suicide dream. Who had that dream? Sophie was completely engrossed. Khan, I think. I think it was Khan's dream. But in the dream... The double suicide was Maddie's idea. In Khan's dream, Maddie suggests they both kill themselves. They go through these cleansing, honoring rituals, very prevalent practices in many cultures where human sacrifice was practiced. And then Maddie holds the gun to Khan's head and pulls the trigger. But when it comes time to shoot herself, she doesn't follow through. Mina stopped. Then what happens? Sophie asks, closing her mouth after realizing it had been open. That was it. That was the end of the dream. What does it mean? Well, as I probably told them at the time, Carl Jung said, that which we fail to bring to consciousness comes to us as fate. Our dreams show us where the energy is trying to go. So, Khan's energy was trying to go towards suicide? Well, death, but they're not the same thing. We die many deaths in this life. When we become an adult, that represents the death of the child. Marriage represents the death of the maid. It is possible that Khan's dream about death represented the death of something to him, something connected to Maddie, or possibly not, something connected to the role of women in his life or perhaps the divine feminine in himself. Sophie was starting to get a little lost in Mina's explanation, but she also felt some understanding beginning to come through. What did Maddie say about the dream, the double suicide dream? Sophie thought to ask. Nothing. She didn't talk about it. She fainted, as I recall, or nearly fainted. I got her some water, and we sat for a while until she regained her strength. And then, when a little of the color had come back into her face, I asked her what she was feeling. And she said she thought her life was stolen time, that she didn't deserve to live because she had killed someone.
Sophie left Mina Theron's house just before five. She had been there almost two hours. Sophie listened and asked questions until her host grew tired and told her they'd have to continue their conversation another time, if Sophie found she needed more information. Sophie apologized for taking her whole afternoon, thanked her profusely, and walked slowly out to her car. She felt stunned, unsure of what it all meant, believing that only one person really knew what happened to Madeline Johnson, and he lived just outside of town. Mina had told her Consulier wrote for the local paper, had had one book published a number of years ago by a small local press, but it only sold a few hundred copies. He was a regular at the local bars, never married as far as Mina knew, made a little money writing freelance pieces for travel magazines and environmental publications. She stopped at a convenience store to fill up her gas tank and get a bite to eat, She thought the slight tremor in her hands might mean low blood sugar. She grabbed a package of beef jerky and a bottle of water. Beef jerky was an unlikely selection for Sophie, but something about the toughness and the salt sounded good. She sat in the shaded parking spot down the street from the Maverick Country Store and chewed piece after piece, trying to get up the nerve to drive to Consulier's house. What was she going to ask him when she got there? Rick had asked her as much a few weeks ago when she first thought about driving to Cedar City. What are you going to do, walk up to him and ask him if he killed his girlfriend 20 years ago? It sounded ridiculous then, but much more so now. Maybe she'd just tell it like it is. That was always what felt most comfortable to Sophie. She'd just knock on the door, tell him she wanted to talk to him about Madeline Johnson, and ask if she could come in. She wouldn't accuse him of anything— She'd just tell him her predicament, explain her challenge, and ask for help. If this case had been an obsession for him, like it was for Ike Johnson, for totally different reasons, maybe he could help. Whether he would or not was another story, but maybe he could. She talked herself into it as she finished the last piece of jerky. She had eaten the whole bag. That was not going to feel good. She took a long swig of water and hoped for the best as she turned the car back on. Khan's house was small but well-kept. It was the smallest house on the street, possibly the first one built. Or maybe the other lots had been sold to owners who tore down the original and put up something more grand with walk-in closets. She pulled up in front and looked to see if she could see any activity. The blinds were closed, and there was no car in the driveway. There was no garage, either, so if his car had been there, she would have seen it. Sophie thought for a minute. Should she come back later? Should she ask a neighbor if he was in town? She got out of the car and walked toward the house. Maybe Khan didn't have a car, she thought. She took a deep breath and knocked on the front door. It reminded her of diving into a pool... She knocked again, harder the second time. No dog barked. She noticed a cat eyeing her in front of the blind in the window. Hmm, he was a cat person. After a minute or two, Sophie walked around to the back of the house, thinking he might be out back. There was no one, only an old picnic bench that looked like it could give you a splinter. The grass was browning in patches, but otherwise well-kept, Sophie walked in the back door, 
She reached up and gave it a good knock. The door inched open. Sophie caught her breath. She hadn't meant to do that. Hello, she called into the crack. Anybody home? She looked around. The neighbors, if they were home, did not seem to notice. Sophie pushed the door open a little wider. Con, I'm looking for Consulier. Anybody home? She asked again as she stepped into the kitchen through the back door. She couldn't believe she was doing this. She could be arrested. Was this breaking and entering? No, she hadn't broken anything. But it was certainly trespassing. She was about to talk herself into going right back out again when she noticed a picture on the hutch in the small dining room off the kitchen. She recognized it from across the room. It was a picture of Maddie and Khan taken in front of a beautiful canyon filled with orange and red spiraling rocks. She had seen the picture in the file and learned later it was taken at Cedar Breaks, just outside Cedar City. Maddie's parents found it among her things after her death. Here was its twin, or another one taken the same day, in Khan's house. She walked into the dining room and touched the picture frame. Why would he still display it? That had been 20 years ago. There were a couple of other pictures on the hutch, one of Khan with a boy who looked about 12. Khan looked much older in this picture, probably 40 or 50. He had a bigger belly and his shoulders slumped more than in the younger photograph. He was graying, but only slightly. His thick-looking hair had kept its dark color well into his middle age. Sophie wondered if this is the way he looked now. Was this a recent photo? She put the frame down and walked deeper into the house. She looked at the bookshelves. You could tell so much about a person from what they read. Nothing too interesting here except psychology books. There was one by Carl Jung. That was interesting after what Mina Theron had just explained to her about Khan's dream. Sophie wandered, losing all sense of propriety now, into the bedroom. There were two bedrooms, actually. The one on the right had a small computer table in it and an old Macintosh computer. The one to the left on the other side of the bathroom appeared to be Khan's room. It had a queen-sized bed that took up the whole room. The bed was made, not tightly, but made. The closet door was open, and there were several shirts hanging from a hook on the back of the door. It was starting to get dark now. This room didn't get a lot of light. Sophie thought to turn a light on to see better when she heard the back door slam. Slam.